Good morning. It's Sunday, June 28th. Welcome to this multimedia resource for at-home spiritual growth. During our transition from the pandemic stay-at-home orders to resuming public worship at Redeemer Lutheran Church. This resource is provided as an interim at-home alternative to our public worship, which is resuming in an outdoor setting this month. The order of service is available for download on our website. You can print off a copy and follow along that way. Or you can also just follow along on the screen as the slides are presented there. God bless you with growth from his word today. Hope is alive even when there is sin. The brief service of word and sacrament. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Let us confess our sins to the Lord. Almighty and merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed what we have devised and desired in our hearts. We have offended you and sinned against your holy law. We have done those things that we should not have done and we have not done those things that we should have done. Have mercy on us, Lord. Spare us, forgive us, and restore us, according to your promises in Christ Jesus. God, our merciful Father, has forgiven all our sins. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Redeemer and Savior. Jesus paid the penalty for our guilt by his death on the cross and freed us from death by his resurrection from the grave. We have peace with God, now and forever. Amen. The early Christian church enjoys life to the full, gathered around the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and this reading is the basis for today's sermon. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Life to the full comes to sheep who pass through the gate. The Gospel is John chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. 
Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. When we call something picture-perfect, we mean something that has no flaws, something that appears exactly as we want it, exactly as we hoped, exactly as we imagined. Which means it's reasonable to call the account of the early Christian church, recorded in Acts chapter 2, a perfect picture of a picture-perfect church. See, just about anyone who hears about the activity of the early Christian church thinks, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. Intellectually-minded people see in Acts 2 a tremendous depth of knowledge and nuance of thought. Relationally-fueled people see deeply intimate fellowship. Ceremonially-centered people see devoted prayer and worship. Outreach-oriented people see massive growth and tremendous levels of evangelism. And socially concerned people see radical generosity and compassion changing lives for the better. But anyone who compares the activity of the early Christian church to today's Christian church often thinks, wow, we are so far from that. The early Christian community, in a way, kind of haunts us. And I guess you could say it's in a good way, because we ask, why are we so far from what we were meant to be? Because Christians have an indelible sense that our life has purpose, and we want that purpose to be fulfilled. So this haunting nature of this account is evidence of our God-given desire for purpose and fulfillment. And so that early Christian community prompts us to ask what made that church so dynamic in the first place so that we can maybe tap into some of the same power. Of course, people come up with all kinds of answers. Charismatic churches will say, you know, it was the miraculous signs, so we need more miraculous signs. Liberal churches will say it was the social concern, so we need more charitable programs. Fundamentalist churches will say it was the strict adherence to a rigor and ri- a rigorous, rigid moral code. That's what did it, so we need more rigorous education and training. But when we go looking for the differences between then and now, we're often trapped by the limitations of our own perspectives. That is, we, we bring the assumptions of our own experience to the table, and we hope to find a way to make the Bible agree. But then we easily miss the real dynamic of the early Christian church, which would be a critical mistake. Because a dynamic is the source of something's power. It's what makes something move. Your car has a dynamic. It's the engine, and and you can't build or fix a car unless you know the dynamic. In the same way, you can't build or fix a church if you don't know the dynamic, what makes it move. 
But thankfully, the perfect picture of a picture-perfect church in Acts chapter 2 shows us the dynamic. And that dynamic is not in extraordinary numbers. It's in sustained daily practice. The dynamic is not in the charismatic gifts of a single generation of leaders. It's in the universal gift God gives to every generation. The dynamic is not something that can only be unleashed once in a fast burst. It's a continual power in every Christian church, including this one. What is the dynamic? Well, Acts 2 shows us it's an inescapable and objective reality that produces genuine community in the lives of the people. An objective truth that produces an effect. Now Luke, the one who wrote the history we call Acts, says this about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Now that's such a short sentence, but it's absolutely jam-packed with significance. In fact, there are four hugely important points in that short report. First, Luke says, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. In other words, to the content. Apostolic teaching was the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for mankind's sin and risen for mankind's justification. And apostolic teaching was eyewitness, confirmation of the events through which God fulfilled the drama of salvation. Apostolic teaching was spirit-enabled remembrance of all that Jesus had said and done. And so the early Christians devoted themselves to the content of the gospel, that Jesus was born, died, buried, raised, seen, and then ascended. They were devoted to the content. But second, the early Christians also devoted themselves to the fellowship, that is, to the setting. They gathered together among those who proclaimed the content of the gospel. The scriptures teach that Christian fellowship is something the Holy Spirit creates because the Holy Spirit is the one who calls people to Christ in the first place. You don't have a fellowship without the call to Christ. Christians then look at their congregation as something the Holy Spirit has quite literally put together for them, which is why mature Christians are so committed to their congregation. It's the place God has given them to share their burdens, confess their sins, receive forgiveness, and pursue the communal life that Christ has called us to lead. Those early Christians were devoted to the setting. They were also devoted to the sacrament, the third thing. That is, they were devoted to the means. They had learned from the scripture that God attaches tangible promises to tangible things, real results attached to real stuff you can see and touch. Baptism, for example, one of the two sacraments, is not only spiritual but physical. You feel something. There's a splash involved. The Lord's Supper, the other of the two sacraments, is not only spiritual but physical. You taste something. There's a meal involved. And the Word of God even is not merely spiritual. It's physical. You hear something. It has to come through your ears. It's not just downloaded to your mind. The, the early Christians realized then that, that the growth in the Christian faith 
It was not something private and inner. It was public and external. And this all happens through the tangible means God has established. So they were devoted to the content, the setting, that communal fellowship, and to the means. And fourth, finally, the early Christians were devoted to the prayers, that is, to the practice. See, this was the daily discipline that worked the truth of God into their lives the way you work yeast into dough. Christian discipleship is a discipline, you see. It's a habit, a practice, worked in over time through many repetitive movements. And by doing this across years and decades, a Christian shapes her thinking and emotions in such a way that Christian discipleship becomes a natural and instinctive way of reacting to the world around her. Some have even said that Christian discipleship is more like a dance, a glorious way of moving through the world that comes, though, from diligent and detailed rehearsal first. Now, the early Christians, you see, they were in awe of these four things. They were devoted to them, the content, the setting, the means, and the practice. And they went all in because of a single, inescapable, profoundly important, objective reality. Jesus had died, but was alive once again. That objective fact about the world was true whether they believed it or not. It's still true whether any of us believe it or not. And that objective reality, that triumph over death, was a legitimate truth. That became the center of their lives and shaped their orientation to and understanding of every situation they faced in life. In this way, the objective, inescapable, external reality became subjective, a tangible, personal benefit in their lives, and it transformed them into the genuine community we read about in Acts chapter 2 the perfect picture of the perfect church, a community formed by the gospel. And Luke goes on to describe it, of course, in these terms. He says, All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, first of all, we got to point out at this this juncture of things, a lot of American Christians have, have tended to assume that somehow what Luke wrote in the first century has something to do with the Soviet Union or Karl Marx or, or Bernie Sanders or something like that. But But to read the Bible as if it's about late 20th century political systems, to read the Bible that way is probably on the list of top 10 most boring ways to read the Bible. There's far more going on here than a political debate. See, to understand what's going on in this Christian community, you have to step back and do a bit of analysis here that isn't just saying, well, what does this have to say about my modern world? You and I have to understand that like-minded people can't simply decide to form a genuine community. At best, like-minded people can form a group around their common interests, and we call those clubs. 
And in a club, a person says, you know, I'm going to join because of blank, where you, the consumer, fill in the blank with something you want. And this tends to work just fine until whatever fills that blank becomes difficult, costly, or even impossible. Which is why clubs always go away eventually, or why, if a club stays, the people eventually go away and there's turnover in the club. Because any community formed, uh, because some people decided to form it, will never look like the community of Acts 2, because the real dynamic is either missing completely, or it's demoted. It's given second or third or fourth rank in things. The early Christian community had such dynamic power, not because they could look around at each other and say, you know, these are my kind of people. It's because they had a deeper connection than their politics, than their temperaments, than their race, than their dreams, and than their, than their preferences. In other words, they weren't like-minded. They were like-hearted. See, in a Christian community, a person says, I'm joining because... God's beauty and grace has reoriented my life. And that's all. That's the reason. The uniquely Christian perspective is, I'm not here because my family members are here, because my tribe is here, or because the politics here suit me. No, you you can get those standards anywhere. You don't have to go to the church to find those kinds of standards. No, the, the uniquely Christian perspective is what is that what fills the blank in why you are in the church, is the word neighbor. And when the beauty and grace of God have reoriented your life to the way of Christ and the word of Christ to love God and love your neighbor, that's your perpetual reason for Christian community. It's not a club. It's a community of like-hearted people. Of course, here we're faced with what appears to be a hopeless situation. Our sinful heart and mind, uh, they represent what appear to be insurmountable obstacles to genuine Christian community. It seems that given our nature, the most we could hope for would be a Christian club, not a community. And you can kind of see it. We're always nursing our hurt feelings because, well, we crave a world in which we get what we want all the time. And in a community, you don't get what you want all the time. So we often leave. Uh, we we struggle with ethnic or social prejudice because we crave a world in which we hold all the power, but in a community we have to yield to the needs and the, the thoughts and the perspective of others, which is often, again, why people will leave from such a setting. We also don't like to admit that our own sense of entitlement gets in the way of community, uh, to be the kind of community God has called us to be in the world, because we don't want to bear the blame, and so we will we'll just find a way to shield ourselves from that. And this is why we often prefer a like-minded club to a like-minded, a like-hearted community. Because in a like-minded club, it's a little easier. You always have people around you reinforcing your views and shielding you from any criticism. It's quite nice, actually. To a, a like-minded club means the challenging and transforming call of God and Christ can't get at the parts of your life you don't want it to touch. It's very convenient. Yet in that hopeless condition of the human heart that seems to stand in the way of us ever enjoying what we're reading about in Acts 2, it's right in that place. That's right where God goes to work to bring the hope for the picture-perfect church that he's called us to be. See, what God does is this. In, in his word, he uses a category of teaching called law 
to unmask the lies at the heart of our selfish behavior. And then when our need for an answer is exposed, God uses a category of teaching called gospel to rescue, to redeem, and to renew us. What that means, practically speaking, is this, that because of the gospel, that Jesus died, rose, and ascended. We don't actually have any reason to be bitter toward one another. Why? Because bitterness is incompatible with a risen Lord. There's nothing that can make us bitter forever. The, The whole game has been changed. Because of the gospel, we have no right to be exclusive. Why? Because... We praise God for a sacrifice that was for all people. So we we say this church is for all people. Because of the gospel, we have no privilege to withhold forgiveness from one another. Why? Because we have received from God forgiveness that far exceeds what we've been even called to give to others. There's no rational basis for it anymore when the gospel is in play. In fact, every time we encounter a tendency or behavior or attitude that comes from a sinful heart, we find in the gospel that the very reason for such a thing is not just invalidated, but it's overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with a liberal generosity so great that it really does just just wash away our sin, floods it out. And when the inescapable reality of an objectively risen Lord whose resurrection conquers death and the sin that causes it When that starts to sink in and the Christian practice is working that implication through your life and through your thinking, well, my goodness, then the gospel, that content creates a boldness of risk required for genuine community to form. See, in the end, we don't gather here because it's nice to see people who affirm our views. We don't praise God because we think it's the best way to get ahead in life. We gather and we praise God because he is beautiful and he is gracious in Jesus and he has reoriented our lives toward one another. We see in the story of God's work in Jesus, we see our own lives woven into that plot. See, Jesus died not in some abstract way, but as the one who came to personally redeem and rescue you. We don't see Jesus ground up in the inevitable gears of fate. We see the God who controls all things voluntarily sacrificing himself to death for your personal gain. We see with our own eyes, touch with our own hands, taste with our own tongue that the Lord is good and that his mercy really does endure. We have seen the hero of the story go to certain death only to come out with the stunning reversal that answers the deepest longing of every human heart. To know that our time is not short. Our lives are not in vain. And our future is not doom, but communion with God and one another that so far exceeds our wildest imaginations It almost hurts to actually think about it. And all this, all this truth and reality, all this good news that shapes and fashions us to be a different kind of people, not like-minded but like-hearted, all this, the perfect picture of the picture-perfect church, is not the kind of thing where you have to wait until you have the right perfect setting to see it flourish. 
No, Acts chapter 2 is not a picture of what you have to do and achieve first to enjoy the rich and varied blessings of Christian community. It's a picture of what life looks like when you have what they had. And we have what they had. We have the content. We have the setting. We have the means. And we have the practice. And when we take the content to heart, when we return again and again to the setting, when we receive regularly the means, when we diligently practice the practice, well, then look around you. And you'll see what God is up to. You'll see the good news turning the whole world upside down. And you'll see that you are the perfect picture of the picture-perfect church in Christ. Amen. Let's now offer the prayer of the church. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. Spare us, Lord, from the lies of the devil and the attacks of our conscience. Comfort and save us in your patient compassion. Have mercy on us, Jesus. Guide us, Lord, to the wisdom of your word and the power of your promises. Take away our confusion and doubt. Have mercy on us, Jesus. Hear us, Lord, when we come to you in prayer. Make us confident to take you at your word and to follow you in faith. Have mercy on us, Jesus. Empower us, Lord, to walk in your ways and live in your truth. Fill us with your love, that we may love you and one another. Have mercy on us, Jesus. The Lord's Prayer Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. The service today again concludes with the common doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God bless you today and in the week to come.